We are in Genesis chapter 15 this morning. Um, On Sunday mornings this fall, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and last week we introduced the character Abram or or Abraham as he's called later, and we're considering this story for the next few weeks, and this morning's passage is really all about learning how to live by God's promises. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, maybe that's expected when you're in a passage in the Old Testament, uh, because so much of the Bible is yet future. I mean, Jesus himself has not yet come as you're reading through the Old Testament. But I want you to think about this. Statistically, in the New Testament, um, one out of every 25 verses is about Jesus' second coming. Um, God's people are a people who are always learning to live by God's promises. We're constantly called to look off to the horizon in the distance and let what we see there shape our experience in the present, because we are a people who learn how to live by promises. So, this passage has several things to tell us about living by God's promise. So, let me uh, read this for us. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, you can find it on page 10 and 11 of those Bibles. Um, so, let me, uh, let me read this passage. Genesis 15, 1 through 21. This is God's holy and inerrant Word, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from, the Ur, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace." You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, 
Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go before Him now before we start talking about these verses and ask for His help. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come and ask for Your help. We pray that You would pour out Your Spirit, that You would take Your Word and write it upon our hearts. Father, we pray that you would teach us to be a people who, who know what it is to live by your promise. Father, we pray that you would build us up and encourage us in this word. We pray for those among us who this very morning may not be believing as of yet. And Father, use these very verses to convert the lost, to bring them to your promise in faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, nine or ten years ago, when my daughter Kennedy um, was, she was just about three or four years old at the time. Um, she became a teenager last week, which kind of makes me a little nauseous, but that's another uh, deal. She's not in here right now, so I feel safe to say that. But, um, so she's three or four years old at the time. And I let her stay up late one night. Jennifer was out doing something. I let her stay up late with me to watch some good, wholesome TV, uh, American Idol. And so we're watching American Idol on the TV, and it's a special episode of American Idol where they, the show is raising money for children in Africa. And these children in Africa are in horrible poverty. They needed clean water. They needed food. They needed medication for malaria and HIV and all kinds of stuff. And at some point, as she's sitting there on the couch with me, and we're watching this sad footage roll by, kids dressed in rags, covered in flies. Um, you can see the, the tracks of tear that tears have cut through their dusty cheeks. And um, And Kennedy asked me a question. She said, why are those kids sad? Um, And I knew she wouldn't understand poverty or malaria or HIV, so I just said, they have boo-boos. And she seemed to to get that. Um, And without skipping a beat, um, she immediately said, or asked this question, will Jesus make it better? three or four years old. And the reason I bring it up is because three or four years old, and she knew that she needed to look out into the future for a promise. She needed to look, there she is, she needed to look out to the horizon. Um, Talking about you, Kennedy, uh, out in the future. She needed to see a place where this story of pain and suffering was somehow going to end in some kind of happily ever after. Uh, Y'all know that I like Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, After the evil ring 
had been destroyed, the hobbit Sam, he woke up and he saw the great wizard Gandalf. And Sam was shocked because, he, well, he was shocked to see Gandalf. He thought Gandalf was dead. But even more than that, Sam was shocked just to wake up because Sam thought he was dead. Um, and so he said this uh, when he saw Gandalf. He said, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asked this question, is everything sad going to come untrue? Immediately looking for a promise, looking for a horizon in the distance, a place where the story would resolve, is everything sad really going to come untrue? A place where the story would end in some kind of happily ever after. Do you know what the Bible says to these questions? Will, will Jesus make it better? Um, is everything sad going to come untrue? The Bible to those questions shouts a resounding yes, right? And, and calls us to live by that promise, to let God's promise about the future hope that we have shape everything about our lives in the present. See, the Bible says there is a day coming when real perfect justice is going to roll down like a river, right? And righteousness is going to flow like a stream. There's a day coming when all of creation is going to be remade and reborn, and all the brokenness in the world will be mended, and everything will be put right, and all pain will be turned to greatest delight. It's when the true king will return and wipe away every one of our tears. And we are to, we are to be a people who live by that promise, a people who are shaped by that promise. So, so we're going to talk about living by God's promise by noticing three things in this passage, okay? Here they are. The crucial problem with our sight. It's the first one. Second, the challenging patience of God. And third, the certain promise of God. Let me give them to you again. First, the crucial problem with our sight. Second, the challenging patience of God. And third, the certain promise of God. So first, let's talk about the crucial problem with our sight. You may not know this about me, um, but I am, I'm nearsighted. I'm wearing my contact lenses right now. If I didn't have them in, I couldn't see you. Um, and so, some Sunday mornings, that, that might be a good thing. But um, being nearsighted means, of course, that I can see things up close, but I can't see things that are far away and in the distance um, without corrective lenses. And the state of Tennessee think that, thinks that's a pretty big deal. Um, because they put it on my driver's license for everybody to see, um, especially police, right? Basically saying, do not let this guy get behind the wheel of a car without corrective lenses. And we know the reason for that, because being able to see what's on the horizon, maybe it's an upcoming bend in the road or an oncoming car, being able to see out into the distance and see the horizon helps me be able to make the right adjustments in the present, right? Maybe I need to slow down or turn the wheel or something. Your view of the horizon gives shape to your life in the presence. And this passage reminds us that we all have a crucial problem with our sight, that we are nearsighted. We're all nearsighted. We have difficulty seeing the horizon. Now, I love this story in Genesis chapter 15, 
Because here's Abram. And if you read his story throughout the Bible, and even how people comment about his story in the New Testament, you know that this is this just this larger-than-life figure. It's Abram, Abraham, right? Heroic, courageous, believing Abram. Yeah, but not here. <laughs> not in this passage that we read. I mean, here he's afraid. Here he's, he's scared. Here his heart is gripped with fear and doubt. And here he's shaken and he's overwhelmed with anxiety and, and, and questions about the future. Here's what I'm saying. Here he looks very familiar because he looks like us. Nearsighted, struggling to see the horizon, struggling to get a handhold on God's promises, His future promises. And when we're nearsighted, we are bound to living in fear and anxiety. It's so interesting to me in this story that we read that God is the one who approaches Abram. God is the first one to speak. And what He says in the very first words, He says, fear not, Abram. I mean, it's like God just gently put His finger on this open wound in Abram's life. And as soon as he did, with the pressure of that touch, all of Abram's fears just start oozing out all over the place. I mean, it's like a dam burst and the floodgates are opened. And all of a sudden, his doubts and his fears and his anxieties just come rushing out, right? In verse 1, God told Abram not to fear. And he reminded Abram that he that God himself was his shield and reward. But immediately Abram's fears came rushing out. Oh, Lord God, this verse 2, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. He's saying, what he's saying is, the heir is not my son. The heir is uh, one of my servant's sons. And so God assured Abram of his promise visually and graphically. Step outside and look at the stars, and so shall your offspring be. And then you get this great verse in verse 6, a very important verse in the Bible. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteous. And you say, great, now Abram believes. But wait a second, because just go one verse more, and you get to verse 8, and here's what Abram says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's still questioning. He's still fearing. He's still doubting. His heart is spasming with fear. I don't even know if that's a word, but it is today. Um, I, he's saying, I hear you, but I can't see it. I can't see it. This crucial problem with our sight are, is our inability to see the horizon. It, it, it's our nearsightedness, right? It, it's the cause of our deep anxiety, our fear and our bitterness and our crippling and paralyzing fears, our obsession in life with getting control, our, our terrifying fear of losing control in life. And it shows up everywhere in our lives. It shows up in our vocations. It shows up in all of our relationships. It shows up in our parenting, in our singleness, in our failures, and in our successes. It shows up in our hopes to be known by others. It shows up in our desires to know others. It shows up everywhere in our lives. You know, C.S. Lewis famously wrote, um, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. 
He's saying we were made to live by God's promise. And when we do, it shapes our lives and we become effective in this world. But when we are nearsighted and we cease to think of that other world, we're dominated by fear and we're paralyzed and we're ineffective in this life. Our technology is advancing so, so very rapidly today. And it's brought us incredible blessings in this life. But it's also done some real, real damage. Um, And one of the ways I think it's done a lot of damage is that it's slowly been killing our imaginations. And we need faith. We need imagination to correct this crucial problem with our sight. I love how Eugene Peterson has written about imagination and faith because he, he says it's not the ability, faith or imagination is not the ability to dream up things that aren't real. He says it's the ability to see things that are real but unseen. And this is what he writes and how he puts it. He says, when I look at a tree, most of what I see I do not see at all. I see a root system beneath the surface, sending tendrils through the soil, sucking up nutrients out of the loam. I see the light pouring energy into the leaves. I see the fruit that will appear in a few months. I stare and stare and see the branches austere in the next winter snow and wind. I see all that. I really do. I'm not making it up. But I could not photograph it. I see it by means of imagination. And I'm asking you the question in this first point. Are you able to see by means of imagination and faith? That's how you begin to correct this crucial problem with your sight. You let God's Word, you let God's promises begin to shape your imagination and what you are able to see, even though it's unseen. You own the problem with your sight, and you come to God's Word to have your vision corrected. Okay, second, let's talk about the challenging patience of God. And the reason I'm calling this point the challenging patience of God is it's because I, wanted, I want you to see a subtle nuance here. Um, it's what I want you to catch in this point. A nuance, right? A, a subtle uh, distinction or difference in meaning, um, a, a slight variation. I, I really hope that God's incredible patience shines through very clearly for you in this story. Abram's fears came rushing out, and though God kept pushing back against those fears and telling Abram of his promise, Abram kept pressing back with his doubts and his fears. But listen, it's amazing just to think what God didn't say to Abram in this passage. He didn't say, Abram, you idiot. I keep telling you these things. How dare you doubt me? I just told you that I'm your shield and your reward. How dare you question me, Abram? I just told you I would give you a son and a land. God never does that here. And this is why Abram's fears come rushing out of his life. But God's patience comes rushing out to meet Abram in his fears. God let Abram question him. He was patient with all Abram's doubts and fears. When your heart spasms with and is gripped by fear and doubt, my question is, where do you take your fears? Where do you take your doubts? I feel like we don't talk about this enough, that God is incredibly patient with doubters. 
with questioners, with skeptics even. I mean, you read David in the Psalms, and he's constantly talking about how he fears that God had forgotten him or that God has hidden his face from him. You think about Thomas who doubted the resurrection. You think about the man who come to Jesus and he brought his doubts. He said, I believe, but I, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. God is incredibly patient with doubters. And it's those who bring their doubts and their, their questions to him that really end up finding answers. The patience of God encourages us to be open and honest about our fears, our doubts, and our questions. That's how you find answers in this life. I could go on and on about God's patience here, but I need to give you the nuance that I mentioned. Here's the nuance. God's patience is challenging. And here's what I mean by that is that throughout this passage, God never lets up. Right? He's patient, but He never stops challenging Abram to believe. He's gentle in his patience, but he keeps pushing Abram further and deeper into his promises. Right? He's patient with Abram in his doubts, but he's challenging Abram not to stay in his doubts. And listen to me, this little nuance is actually quite large in its implications because this is the kind of love that will actually change you. God's patience, God's love, it meets you where you are, but it never leaves you where you are. It's challenging patience. A love that meets us where we are, but that won't leave us where we are, that's what we really need in this life. This could be a bad idea, but I wanted you to try to follow a train of thought that I had about this um, this past week. Um, as I was thinking about this challenging patience of God, one of the first things I thought was, that's exactly the kind of parent I want to be to my children. And that's exactly the kind of parent I know I'm not to my children. To, meet, to be able to meet them exactly where they are in love, in gentleness, and acceptance and approval but also at the same time to be able to challenge them and not leave them where they are. Because I know this. That's the kind of love that would fill them with confidence and assurance and lead them to a life of flourishing. So I'm thinking about how I'm not this, but I want to be this. And then I remembered something funny that happened a few months ago when I was putting one of my daughters to bed. And after I had prayed with her and I'm tucking her into the sheets and all that kind of stuff, she looked up at me and she asked me this question. She said, do I have two dads? And um, my first thought was, apparently my wife and I need to have a conversation uh, later on tonight. Um, sure what's happening when I'm at work. Um, but, uh, but I think my daughter caught my confused look when she asked me that question and she said this. She said, she said, well, you know, you know how you're my dad, but God's my dad too. He's my father. And listen, that's actually how I'm going to be able to love my children the best 
is to lead them beyond me, a father who is full of brokenness and failures, and point them to another father who will never let them down, who will always meet them where they are and never leave them where they are, a father who will know perfectly how to do that in their lives. And I get it. It's hard to believe, to trust. It's hard to see God's promises. That is these promises that can radically reshape our lives. But be encouraged in this point. I want you to be encouraged. You have a father like this. That you can bring your fears and your doubts and your questions and your confusion and your doubts to him and to his challenging patience. And he'll be patient with you. And he will challenge you to rest and cling to his promises because he will never leave you where you are. All right, finally, the last point, the certain promise of God. So as you're looking at Genesis chapter 15, the whole purpose of this episode, this event in Abram's life, is really God's condescension to Abram to give him assurance of his promise. Assurance of his future promise so that Abram really could live by God's promise. And to do that, God had to come down. And he had to give Abram something on his level that he could understand and that he could comprehend. So God put his promise in a cultural form that was readily understandable and identifiable to Abram. He put it in terms of a covenant ceremony. Now, give me a moment to explain a covenant ceremony, and then I'll explain why it was readily understandable and identifiable to Abram. So, when I was growing up, I I think especially when I went off to college and I started signing documents for scholarships or financial aid or, or lease on apartment or something like that, my dad would say, Nathan, be sure you read everything you sign, Um, right? And you know why my dad taught me that? It's because we live in a written culture, and therefore the way we make contracts, the way we make covenants, and we give assurance that we will be accountable, we do it all through the written form. But here's the thing. Abram lived in the ancient Near East, and he didn't live in a written culture. He lived in an oral culture. And the way you made a contract, the way you made a covenant with someone in an oral culture was by acting it out in dramatic form. Dr. John Currid, um, who's an expert in ancient Near Eastern culture, he writes that the purpose of the covenant ritual, ritual was to invoke a curse. Animals were taken, and they were cut in half. Right? And the parties making the promise, they were, they were cut in, in half and they were set down opposing each other. And, and the parties who were making the covenant, making the promise, were to walk through those pieces of animals. And, and it was a way of acting out the terms of the covenant in dramatic form. They were saying, if I break this covenant, if I don't keep my promises that I'm making right now, may I be cut in half just like these animals. Let me give you an example of this just by reading a few verses from Jeremiah 34 that I I think will make it clear. 
It says this, Jeremiah 34. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Now listen to this. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. See, God entered into a cultural form to assure Abram of the certainty of his promise. Now, why did I say earlier that this ceremony was readily understandable and identifiable to Abram? Well, here's why. There seems to be a missing verse in this passage, right between verse 9 and 10. Because in verse 9, God told Abram to go get all these animals, the ram, the goat, all all that stuff. And then in verse 10, Abram started cutting them in half. And what's missing is any command from God to cut these animals in half. Because as soon as God told Abram, go get all these animals, Abram did something like this. He said, oh, I get what's happening here. We're going to make a covenant right here. He knew it. He knew it immediately. We're going to make promises, me and God. And when all this cutting was done, we read in the story, this deep sleep fell on Abram, and a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. That is, it was terrifying, verse 12. And God assured Abram of his offspring and and his land that he was going to give them. And then in the darkness, Abram saw, this is verse 17, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Stay with me. We just got a little bit more to go. Um, You know, smoking fire pot and this flaming torch, those are really hard words to translate from the Hebrew, but they show up in another place in the Bible. They show up when God came down on Mount Sinai, and there was smoke, and there was fire. Um, Those words can actually be translated billowing smoke and searing lightning. It was a visual, graphic symbol of God's presence. I mean, can you imagine this scene here? Abram's terrified in the darkness, and then all of a sudden comes billowing smoke, and a piece of lightning comes down that somehow holds its shape, and it passes through, crackling and popping through these pieces. And Abram saw it. God himself was passing through the pieces. And then in verse 19, the ritual was over. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, is what verse 19 says. And here's the incredibly shocking thing. Something was missing. Earlier, there was a missing verse, but there's another missing verse at the end here. Only one person walked through the pieces, and the ceremony was over. Here's what I'm saying. saying Abram should have passed through those pieces, but God didn't make Abram pass through those pieces. And do you know why? It's because God was saying, Abram, if I fail to keep my promise to you, may I be cut into like these pieces 
But that's not all God was saying. He was also saying this, Abram, if you fail to keep my covenant through your disobedience, I will not make you be cut to pieces. I'll be cut to pieces for you to keep my promise to you. The Old Testament scholar Ian Dugid, these scholars have these strange names. I I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, He asks a great question about this verse and these passages. He says, by what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abram? How could it have been displayed more vividly, he asks. This whole episode is just so incredibly graphic, visual, and amazing. How could God have displayed his commitment more graphically, Dugit asks. And then this is what he says. The only way would have been for the figure of smoke and fire to become a reality. For the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of the covenant-breaking children of Abram. And that's precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. The eternal God condescended. He came down, and He took on flesh, and He was cut to pieces to keep His promise to His people. On that day, interestingly enough, the gospel writers tell us that when Jesus was hanging on a cross, a terrifying and dreadful darkness fell on the land. There he was stretched out. There he was dying because we had broken the covenant. But he was the one who had walked through the pieces, and he was willing to be cut to pieces in order to keep his promises to us, to forgive us, to cover us with his righteousness, to renew and remake us, and to one day, someday, remake everything and put everything that is wrong in this world right again. How do you live in light of those promises? Let me say say just a few things here. How do you live in light of those promises? You live in freedom. Christianity is a grace religion. Don't you dare say all religions are the same, because they are not. There is no religion like this. Every other religion makes you walk through the pieces In Christianity, God himself walks through the pieces. In in Christianity, Abram didn't do anything to earn righteousness. Verse 6, he believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Another way you live by these promises is you live in joy. I mean, the sting of death has been removed, for Jesus himself swallowed up death in his resurrection, in his victory over death. You also live by promises when you live obediently and faithfully out of gratitude for everything that God has done for you in your life. But let me, uh, this is how I want to end. I want to end with four more just very brief applications directly related to finding the assurance of God's promise. Because that's what this passage is telling us. You need the assurance of God's promise if you're going to live by His promise. So first, I'll just tell you this very simply. Read the Bible. That's how you find assurance. 
You read the story of a God who made a unilateral covenant with his people. The story of a God who came down in human form and was cut to pieces for us in our place. You've got to read the story and you've got to let that story reshape your imagination, reshape your faith so that you can have your nearsightedness healed. You've got to read the story. Second, if you're doubting and you're unsure, and by the way, we all are at times, you need to take your doubts and your fears and your questions and your anxieties to God, and you need to find His challenging patience. He will love you where you are, but He won't leave you where you are. And what I'm saying is you need to not just read His story, but you need to go to Him in prayer and ask Him for assurance. If you want assurance, ask Him for it. Right? He's the one who gives his spirit and says in Romans chapter 8, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Pray for that internal working of the spirit and assurance that God promises to give his people. Third, I want you to think about the benediction, okay? We say the benediction at the end of every service. I I say, remain standing for God's benediction, his good word to his people, because it comes from a Latin word, bene, which means good, and diction, which means word, his good word, God's good word to his people. Why do we say a benediction every week at the end of our service? It's because of this. It's because on, on the cross, Jesus took the malediction, the bad word, from God for us. That's what the curse was all about, of the covenant. On the cross, Jesus heard, cursed, forsaken, despised, sin, stricken, cut off, and out of the land of the living. He took the malediction so that every week you could stand up and lift up your head and hear the benediction and be reminded of God's love for you and assured of His love because of what He has done for you in Jesus. And then fourth, I'll just say this, ritual ceremonies are nothing new to us, shouldn't be anything new to us. What we have here is a table. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. And it is a table that preaches to us of God's commitment to us and of how He is a God who keeps His promise to us. It is our way of acting out what Jesus has done for us. He was cut to pieces to make us whole. His blood was shed to wash us and make us clean. Christians, in just a minute, we're going to come to this meal. And one of the reasons you come to this meal is to find assurance of God's promises. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We praise you and thank you for your word. Father, we confess that we often live in nearsightedness because we don't know your story. Father, we often live confused and unsure because we we fail to go to you in prayer and to bring our doubts and our fears before you. Would you help us to do these things? Would you assure us of your good word to us. And Father, we pray that in this meal we're about to take together as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, Father, we, we pray that you would indeed assure us of all that you have done for us so that we could continue to be 
a people who are living by your promises and a people who are reshaped because of your promises. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.